Hey, Rafer. Hey, Kristen. I have a question for you. All righty. Who has their finger in all the jelly this week? I don't know what you mean by that. <laughs> There's so much jelly out there. There's a lot of jelly. I don't know where you're going with this. And this jelly has one man and his fingers in all of it. Who in the hell would that be, Kristen? And you still don't know what I'm talking no. about. No. <laughs> all right, I'm going to give you a Do hint. I want to know? All right, we have three big movies we're talking about this week. Yeah. Well, two big ones and one kind of smaller release. It's more limited release. We have Irrational Man, which I'm... is Woody Allen's new movie starring yes. Emma Stone, Joaquin Phoenix, and Parker Posey. That's correct. We have Ant-Man from the Marvel Universe. That's Paul Rudd. That's right. He's play, he plays Ant-Man. Yes, yes. And then we also have a romantic comedy, Amy Schumer, in Trainwreck. Yes, okay. So what's the connection between all three of these? Who is the man who has his finger in all three of those movies? His finger's in all the jelly. What's with the jelly, Kristen? <laughs> it's disturbing me. I don't know. Who is it you're talking about? I'm talking about Judd Apatow. What's his, okay, Schumer. Yes, obviously he's directing, he directing Trainwreck. He, he's the director of Trainwreck. Uh, what, okay, Ant-Man? Ant-Man. Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd is his man. That's right, that Paul Rudd is his man. That's one of his favorites. It's this part is, of his this entourage is 40, that he casts in all of Knocked up, yeah, 40-year-old virgin. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you're right. Uh, but Irrational Man, the Woody Allen film? Um, what's Emma the Stone. Hello, Emma, Emma Stone. Emma Stone? What's Emma of Stone's Super connection? Superbad fame? Emma Stone was in Superbad. Yes, that's right. She's one of Apatow's sweethearts, too. She was Jonah Hill's love interest. Yes. In, in Superbad. Yes. You're amazing. You She's put all that Apatow together? Sweetheart. They're all Apatow sweethearts. And when you're an Apatow sweetheart, I think you're pretty much set on a good road in Hollywood. Boy, that's true. He does have his fingers in all the jelly. He does. Oh, now you're saying it. And it wow. grossed you out before. It still grosses me out, but... <laughs> Okay, we're going to talk about all three of those jars of jelly. Uh, but first, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Rafer Guzman, film critic for Newsday. And I'm Kristen Mines, our culture producer for The Takeaway, and this is Movie Date. All right, Rafer, well, shall we start off with one of this week's big movies, or shall we say... Little movies. Baha. Oh, Baha, so Krishna. little. It's like a little insect. <laughs> I don't know what that accent is. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I, I don't even know why I just did it's that. Your, There's not your, even a villain with that accent this it's week. your mini Bella Lugosi accent. <laughs> mini Lugosi. Thank you for that, Kristen. <laughs> all right. Well, Rafer, tell us all about Ant-Man. Ant-Man is the new Marvel superhero movie starring Paul Rudd in the title role. He plays a master thief who has been recruited to wear the Ant-Man suit. It's a suit that can shrink and expand in size at will. Uh, the original Ant-Man, played by Michael Douglas, uh, he's called Dr. Hank Pym. He has chosen Paul Rudd's character to be the new Ant-Man, and he's going to teach him how. And it's a good thing, too, because there's a villain who has his own kind of insectoid suit who plans to destroy the world. Here's a clip. You need to be skillful, agile, and above all, you need to be fast. You should be able to shrink and grow on a dime. So your size always suits your needs. Now dive through the keyhole, Scott. You charge big, you dive small, then you emerge big. Now, many people I think out there, when they've seen the posters for this, just when I talk to people, they, they, they always say to me, has it really come to this? 
is Marvel really so desperate now that they've, it that looks they've ridiculous. got Ant-Man? It's just like, really, do I want a superhero who's half an inch tall? Exactly. What can you possibly do? You're half an inch tall. Exactly. Especially when you have people out there like the Hulk. Right. No, I know no, no, what you're no. saying. I know what you're saying. And I, too, was skeptical. Uh, as I'm sure you were, Kristen, you are no you are no superhero movie fan. No, I'm not. I like one about one of maybe every thirty. Yes, that's right. <laughs> one out of every thirty. <laughs> well, here to uh, help us talk about Ant Man is our uh, trusty guide through the Marvel universe, Scott Rosenberg, entertainment editor for AM New York. Scott, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, all right, let's just start off. Tell us. What's the big deal? Get it? What's the big <laughs> deal about Ant-Man? First off, he's a hero who's been around for a very long time, going back to the 60s, predates the Avengers. Um, you, know, you know, what's the power of a little guy? You know, little Ant-Man can climb into the nose of the Hulk and punch his brain. I mean, right. there's lots of little things that a guy can do like that that's pretty powerful. He's been a character who's been around forever. Uh, I mean, even Scott Lang's been around for a long time. There's been, I think, four Ant-Mans. Oh, Ant- is that right? Ant-Men. We should say um, uh, briefly Scott Lang, which is uh, uh, Paul Rudd's character. He is a, a master thief just mm-hmm. out of prison, and uh, we won't spoil the whole plot, but he gets chosen to be the yeah. new Ant-Man. Yeah. And, and so um, and it seems to me like it was important, though, to have the Dr. Hank Pym character, played by Michael Douglas, appear in this film. Why, why is that so important? Well, he's the originator. In, in the comics, Pym is a very pivotal character. He actually – he's actually the one who's responsible for creating Ultron, the Vision, uh, super genius guy. Oh, all these other Marvel characters yeah. that we've now seen, yeah. yes. And his – I mean he had a wife named Janet Van Dyne um, who was the Wasp, also appeared in Avengers number one. Alluded to in this film. Yes. So, I mean he's a pivotal character in the Marvel Universe, one of the genius characters up there with like Bruce Banner and uh, Mr. Fantastic. OK. All right. So. Now, why have we not seen Ant-Man in – the other movies then if he predates the avengers if he's part of the avengers world why, why is this our first time really like seeing him in this modern version of all these movies that's a business question um, <laughs> no it, it is this this was something that they were long looking to make this movie edgar wright um who did uh, Shaun of the dead yes and uh, joe cornish i believe his name um they had been working on a movie this this script is is their it's their script but this has been in the works for a very very long time I, I mean, I don't know the exact thing, but I'm sure there was a rights issue that they were the rights were set aside for this movie, and uh, that's that's why he was separated off. And then, you know, everything here comes together. And so, how Scott did you feel about this treatment of the Ant Man? You know, you've got Paul Rudd and Adam McKay helped write the script. Adam McKay from Anchorman. Mm-hmm. Um, you can tell that there. You know, whenever the movie is funny, I get the feeling that some of that must have come from Rudd and McKay. So how and, did and you? And Peyton Reed directing too. A good, a good comedic uh, director. Right. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, I thought it was great. I thought it was a great idea. You know, I've I've long said that the the future of superhero movies is going to have to be dependent on how diverse they get within the genre. You need a comedy. This was, you know, like a heist comedy. That's what this basically is. Yeah, true. You know, you have your your sci-fi epic with Guardians and you have your, uh, you know, your kind of your 70s pot boiler with the second Captain America. I mean, I think this was the smart choice. They have to do something different. You can't just have a hero fight the villain every time. It's a, this one's a comedy. This one will be Doctor Strange is going to be some kind of mystical, you know, cerebral movie, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Maybe tinges of horror. So, I mean, I think it was a smart choice. Let's lighten things up. This is a kind of a standalone movie. It's funny. It's got good heart. 
you know, it's I think it was a great idea. Now, one of the things I liked about this movie as a non-comic book movie fan is I never had to be introduced in advance to who Ant-Man was. And I, I like that we're sitting down now and we're learning more from you right now, Scott. But I liked that I could sit down and for the first time be introduced to him and get a complete story where I think a lot of the other comic book movies in recent years have all been like so self-referential or referencing other movies in the universe or other mm -hmm. comic books. And it makes it really hard for me to follow a lot of these movies lately. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. this one I could just, from the beginning, just be on board for the ride. But I'm wondering, for super comic book fans like yourself, does that mean that a lot of you guys are going to be bored by this because it's just going to feel like another origin story? I, I mean, I wasn't bored at all with this. And, and I, I would love more of these kind of things. I think this is a great opportunity to take some of the other lesser known characters in the Marvel Universe and kind of bring it into the cinematic universe. And you can just bring in a character and be like, here's a movie. Maybe it'll show up later. Maybe he won't. doesn't matter. And, and that's great. You know, I I enjoy the deep continuity with all the Avengers and, and all these things and seeing how this connects. And this this one does connect. I mean, there's right. serious connections to it. We see the Falcon. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, but, you know, I'm okay with having just here's a story about Ant-Man and that's fine. And Kristen... What what was your reaction to this film? I know you're a big Paul Rudd fan. Oh, I love that Paul Rudd. If he <laughs> wants too. to hug me, I'll so hug good. you anytime right back, Paul Rudd. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I liked, as I was just saying, I liked that it was its own movie and I didn't need to know other stuff. But I also love the comedy and the action sequences. Mm -hmm. The action sequences were so clever. Yes. They were witty and they were fun to watch. When you see somebody shrinking and growing on a dime, they're running and charging, they're shrinking, they're exploding, they're small, they're big, mm -hmm. they're even smaller than like an <laughs> atom at certain points. Right. Subatomic. Yes. Adam is a DC comic. It's so. <laughs> <laughs> a whole different superhero. Sorry about that. But I thought that was so fun to watch and Absolutely. it really knew what it was. It wasn't trying to be hugely important. It knew when to joke about the fact that we're in a children's playroom right now. <laughs> right. And that this fight that's on these toys looks ridiculous if you're standing back, even though up close it looks like life and death. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 thought, I thought that the action sequences were, were really fun, really funny. Um, and I felt like they often sort of poked fun at the whole idea of the Marvel action sequence. There's a great, there's a great little uh, moment in the film where uh, Paul Rudd, who is who is down to the size of of the ant, is um, running through one of those architectural model cities. So it's all just sort of white, and um, he's you know doing the doing the classic stuff where he's like diving over the hood of a car, but it's just a little tiny car. It's a little, it's a little, <laughs> little, little paper mache white nothing car, and the city is crumbling the way cities always crumble in the Marvel movies. But it's all about three inches high, and I thought that was really funny. And I love the uh, I love the climactic uh, Thomas the Tank Engine yeah. train set scene, which I thought was great. Um, I, I I have to say, I really really enjoyed this, and I thought even though. Personally, I thought the story and the, some of the character motivations were a little wobbly and not that well sketched out to me. I thought the sense of humor was what really saved it. Um, a question for you, Scott. Yeah. I think they have estimated this to hit somewhere in the 60 million range for mm -hmm. an opening. Does that seem low or high to you for a superhero film? That seems a little low to me. It seems low for a superhero film. However... And, you know, I'm going to put an asterisk on this because the Guardians of the Galaxy just threw this whole premise out the window here. Not a known quantity. Yes. However, you got Paul Rudd. It is a Marvel movie. They started putting more of the connections in the ads. At first, they didn't show any connection to the rest of the universe. And in the, in the uh. commercials, they started showing Falcon. Um, so, I mean, it, it does seem low. I mean, you know, Trainwreck's going to do really well. Yeah. 
um, you know, Jurassic World's still in theaters. So it's, it's right. you know, mm. there's a lot going on now that's making a lot of money. Right. So I think it'll do well. I mean, I, I don't think they'd be upset with $60 million, but uh And will you yeah. be seeing it 60 times? <laughs> Maybe on DVD. Okay. Scott Rosenberg, entertainment editor at AM New York and our uh, appointed tour guide through the Marvel Universe. Thanks a lot for coming in. Uh, Thanks for having me. All right, Rafer, let's move on to one of our smaller releases this week, which is in very limited release. I think it's just like in three theaters this week, but it'll be expanding next week. It's Woody Allen's newest movie, A Rational Man. Now, this centers on a professor in his 40s, philosophy professor played by Joaquin Phoenix at a small university. He's maybe feeling disenchanted with life. He's not totally inspired. And there are two women in his life who may or may not bring him out of that funk. One, a woman his own age, a professor played by Parker Posey, and then a very young, lively student who thinks he's absolutely brilliant, played by Emma Stone. And then along with all of that, there's a murder plot. Here's a clip. How's it coming? Um, blocked. Can't write. You need a muse. I've never needed a muse before. I hope you're not going to send me back out into the rain without sleeping with me. So, Kristen, um, of course, a lot of familiar Woody Allen motifs in this mm-hmm. film, right? Uh, let's We can just tick them off. One is... Um, French philosophy and Russian literature. A lot mm. of talk about those two things. Very classic, classic Woody Allen, right? And, and, and another one is, I'm a much older man. You're a professor, and you're my undergraduate student. Yes, the and young, you the older man. And you just admire me so much. <laughs> and the younger woman. I am so yes. fascinating to you. Yes, of course. And also, uh, the idea of the murder, the murder plot, the perfect crime, very much like Match Point, very much like Crimes and Misdemeanors. Um, and so, Manhattan murder mystery. Oh, Manhattan murder mystery. That's true too. Um, I'd forgotten about that one. So, yeah, a lot, this is a very this is a very Woody Allen Woody Allen film. Um, I'm guessing uh, that you have a few objections to raise. <laughs> I don't know. We haven't discussed this yet, but I'm, it's just a guess on my part. You're just saying that because I have this look on my face, like I want to. Um, like I want to barf. But no, that's not true. I don't want to barf. I just, you know, you warned me in advance because you saw this before me. We couldn't go to the same screening, unfortunately. Yep. And you said, Kristen, I just want to tell you in advance, you might be a little bit upset by some of the dialogue Emma Stone has. Yeah, well, yeah. And okay. even with your warning, I still was livid. Livid? Oh, yeah. So many, like, okay, so she voice, she does the voiceover for a lot of scenes in the movie where yeah. it's just Joaquin Phoenix looking sullen or Joaquin Phoenix lecturing his class and... Or he's walking along a street with uh, Emma Stone, but her voiceover is like, he's just the most fascinating man in the whole world. Yes. I've never met someone more brilliant in my life. His brain is beyond comprehension. He's just perfect. Yes. And that's almost all of her character is just to talk about how great this guy is. Yes. So, yeah, that drove me nuts. That bothered you? Yes. That did not bother me. I think, what? I think I think uh, I know what you're saying, but I think in this film, in this specific instance, she's supposed to be a starry-eyed, over-impressionable and gullible romantic 
college student, uh, which I think is actually a pretty believable character. I think she's this young, bright-eyed girl who's in love with the romantic idea of the tortured philosopher, and Joaquin Phoenix fits that bill, and so she falls for him. And many of her lines, I think, are patently ridiculous. There's that one great one where I think it's the one you're talking about where she says, was he just frustrated and bored by the day-to-day meaninglessness of of existence? He was so damn interesting. (laughs) And I think that's a that's when you a deliver line. it, I can laugh. When you do it, I can laugh. But you didn't. You didn't but, laugh in the but film. But actually, you... watching the movie, it it brought me back to all the things that Woody Allen gets criticized for, as far yes. as his obsession with much younger women. Yep. Uh, you know, she's like barely legal. What what is she supposed to be like? Well, she's a, a college student, so yeah. I mean, well, well, let's, yeah. I mean, let's assume she's legal. I mean, she's probably eighteen. Yeah, right, at she's, least she's just a kid, and you know, he's living out his. Woody Allen fantasy, some might say in this movie again, you know, and and it gets tiresome after a while. I would say this movie and you're you're not the first person I've spoken to uh, who has kind of just sort of given up, I think, (laughs) and and said, oh, my God, how much more Woody Allen can a Woody Allen film get? I'm I'm sick of this. But uh, I thought this was perfectly fine, straight down the middle. Uh, average good Woody Allen film. Yes, I've seen the material before. I've seen the plot before. Uh, yes, it's an older man and a younger woman. Yes, but I think what what helps with this film is one of the better casts, I think, that Woody Allen has assembled. And it's a very small cast, really. It's really just three people, as you said, Emma Stone, Parker Posey, who is fantastic I in will this give movie. it to Parker Posey. Parker Posey is very good in this. She's, I mean, she was, she's just shockingly good. I mean, no disrespect to Parker Posey, but she usually tends to play a certain kind of snarky alt chick, I guess I would say. And this is the perfect role for her because now she's kind of the older snarky alt chick whose life has not gone the way she wants it to. And she's unhappy. She's married, by the way. And um, I thought she was actually really quite moving in this film. Um, I think she's almost like the best character in it. She was the closest to being a human. She was the closest to the being... The other ones yes. are more like archetypes or... Yes. I mean, she was just actually somebody who was very fully formed. Yes, I totally agree. Um, but all that said, I thought this was a fine little, like... Uh, it, it felt like a little entertaining bauble of a short story. It felt like a little piece of short fiction from Woody Allen. I'm totally fine with it. I thought I thought uh, Irrational Man was a completely fine date, whereas mm. you say horrible date, horrible Irrational Man, actually horrible, was a horrible, horrible date. I'm starting to question. You know, like when you went out on a date with somebody years ago, and you were like, "Oh, they're so wonderful. I love them," and then you see them again years later because maybe you hooked up on Facebook or something, and there's someone you went out with in high school, but now as grown ups, so you're like, "Oh, hold on." Did I ever love you in the first place? You mean just like the Emma Stone character oh, in this no, film. He no, was I so don't. damn interesting. And now you've grown up. And now you've grown up. Oh, but I want to think Woody Allen was interesting back when I was a kid. I, I want to believe I he think actually he still was is. good. But, I think he still but is. But I, I feel like this was a very disenchanting date. Very I def- I'm defending the patriarch. Mm. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. You do that, Rafer. Okay, Kristen, here's our last movie to review this week. The big one, the big talker, Amy Schumer in Trainwreck. Amy Schumer. Amy Schumer taking on the romantic comedy. Of course, we all know Amy Schumer from uh, Inside Amy Schumer, her Comedy Central show, the skits that have gone viral. It seems like one one every week. Uh, She tackles 
gender issues, sexism, hypocrisy, uh, Politics, the, the man. Stupidity. Yes. Yes. Uh, and, you know, here's here is here is her. She uh, she wrote this film. This is really her film. Here is her take on the romantic comedy. She plays a woman named Amy who is, as the title suggests, a bit of a mess. She is a non-monogamous, let's say, commitment phobic. Uh, she's got a guy that she's dating, played by John Cena, actually, which is kind of funny, the professional wrestler. Um, but she's really stringing him along. She's seeing other guys, and by seeing, I think you know what I mean. And uh, and yet, at one point, uh, she falls for this sports doctor named Aaron. Amy is a magazine writer, and she's assigned to do a profile on this guy named Aaron, played by Bill Hader. And she kind of starts to develop some feelings for him. Here's a clip. I think you're so great. And uh, uh, from now on, we, we need to just keep it professional. Okay. You know? Yeah. Okay. I think we really like each other and we should start dating. I'm confused. I, am I not communicating this right? Like, I, I. No, I hear you. I'm just saying I disagree. Do you like me? Yeah. Yeah, see, I really like you. So we all recognize this premise from, you know, many romantic comedies throughout the ages. Uh, Kristen, I'm going to ask an obvious question, a leading question, you might say. Do you like Amy Schumer? Oh, gosh. As every listener to this podcast knows, as you know very well, Rafer. Yes, I do. I love that Amy Schumer. Yes. I love Amy Schumer. I think she's so smart. I think she's tackling a lot of issues in such a smart way that they haven't been tackled before. Yes. And I think that she's not afraid to um, call out people for being horrible, for being patriarchal, whether they're women or men. She's yep. not just saying, this is all your fault, dudes. Yes. She's also pointing to the ways that women internalize these things. True. How we frequently don't treat each other as well as we should. And she's not afraid to show all sides of things. And sure. I think that's very smart. It's not I like just... Her, uh, I like her sexting skit. I thought her sexting oh, skit was very funny. Uh, yeah. No, she's, she's very good at that stuff. I think she is, I think she is doing... Doing and saying things that only a female comedian could do and say and make those things stick and make those things hurt. I think she I think she strikes a lot of really deep blows at things. And and the one I'll point to, I probably her, her best known at this point is the uh, the football rape uh, skit, the Friday Hold Night on, Lights can skit. Can I rape her if I get her drunk first? <laughs> Hold on. But can I rape her if a bunch of other guys are videotaping me raping her? It's very funny. It's very funny. And that that skit, I thought, was really, really daring and really like, really made its point and struck a very hurtful blow in yeah. the greatest, funniest way. Uh, yeah. It's great. And yeah. so here she is with this romantic comedy. And I will say the romantic comedy, as I think anyone knows, is like one of the most conservative genres that you could possibly think of. I mean, a family, uh, uh, a romantic comedy really just exists almost solely to uphold family values. What, yeah, they, what they end with, girl, boy meets girl. Boy loses girl. In the end, it's clear they're going to get married, there's, even if they don't do it on screen. There's always, there's always a wedding or a childbirth either on screen or implicit. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's what the romantic comedy does. So how did you feel that Amy Schumer handled this material? So... First and foremost, I think with certain characters, she really did a good job of, again, not just lambasting males, but also the female characters. And, mm -hmm. and, and um, but um, I will say sometimes those side characters, sometimes there were too many moments with the side characters and there really should have been more moments between Amy Schumer and Bill Hader, yeah. who she's falling in love with, who right. she's struggling with. 
because as much as I love Amy Schumer and as much as I actually was cheering for her through this whole movie, I really was on team Amy through this whole movie. Mm-hmm. I just didn't get as much as I needed realistically about the development of the relationship between her and Bill Hader. I don't I think that's one of the biggest weak points in the movie and I'm going to say it's kind of the kiss of death for a romantic comedy when there's no chemistry between the two leads uh and I did not think that she and Bill Hader had any kind of uh heat or electricity of any kind and I I will say it's because Bill Hader's character is just a drip. He's just a non-entity. What's interesting about that to me is that that's the kind of role that women have been playing, I think, in romantic comedies for a long time. You've got the it's usually the man who's the slovenly wreck, the dysfunctional, uh, you know, a bozo and the woman who's this patient, good hearted, loyal saint who loves him. And in this case, the, the roles are flipped. And now it's Bill Hader, who's just this kind of nice guy with no other dimension to his personality. Um, so in some ways, I kind of thought like, well, Maybe that's just payback, you know, for for a decade of crappy roles for women or so. Um, But I did feel like the Bill Hader character didn't bring anything to the movie. And I found it hard to understand why he was falling for Amy Schumer's character, because she really is trouble. She really is a train wreck. Um, She's not, as John Cena, her her semi-boyfriend says at one person, at one point, you are not a nice person, Amy. You are not a good person. And there was was a moment where I kind of thought, that's actually true in this film. She is not a good person in this film. she's not good to him. She's not good to almost anyone, actually, in this movie. Um, The only person she's good to, which I think is interesting, is her dad, played by a fantastic Colin Quinn. Oh, yes. Who I mean, who knew that Colin Quinn could play like an actual character and be super, super good at it? He's really good in this role as, as her cranky kind of Racist, woman. Racist, homophobic, <laughs> homophobic misogynist. Who is now ailing and in a nursing home. And so, so his kind of partying days are behind him. But he's really funny. And they really bond a lot. And those scenes I actually thought were the most kind of um, emotionally engaging in the movie. I just ultimately thought that Trainwreck was not a subversive romantic comedy. I didn't think it kind of pulled the genre apart in any interesting way. It seemed like a really a really typical romantic comedy, and I'm going to put a lot of the blame on Judd Apatow. I think, oh, I think, really? I, I, I know. I'm going to say the unsayable. Judd Apatow, I think, is becoming kind of a weak director. I think, <gasps> I think This is 40 and Funny People both had, like, major, major flaws that sunk them as movies, and I think Trainwreck has a lot of those flaws. First of all, a comedy should not be two hours long, over two hours long. There's just a lot of overstuffed characters, scenes that don't work. It it could have used a good 30-minute edit, and it drags, and it doesn't kind of hold together very well. And I thought, ultimately, Trainwreck was like an average to below average date. Yeah. You well, thought, I, I can I can understand a lot of your criticisms. I do think it could have been trimmed by 15 minutes. I yeah. do think that that trimming could have been primarily with all of the supporting characters who occasionally yeah. felt like they were just doing their own stand-up routines in the film. Yes. A lot, of, like, a lot of sports figures. Uh, yeah, you know, LeBron James has a big role. Amir yeah. Stoudemire has a big role. Yeah, and I didn't need all of those little shticky things, the right. all like third-run characters from Saturday Night Live who show up and do their little <laughs> shtick or whatever. I didn't need that. Right. Um, and like I said, I would have liked more time with our lead characters showing us why they fell in love, sure. why they're together. But, but still, all that being said, I really enjoyed this movie. I laughed my head up, but this is the, the more surprising part for me. I cried a lot. 
during this movie. And I did not expect to cry. Even for you, that amazes me, I know. I did not expect to. But I I will say there's a funeral scene that just... I, I was sobbing. That's a very good scene. scene. That's I a very good scene. I thought it was so well written, so well done. Yeah. And then the last 15 minutes of the movie, I cried through the whole entire last 10 or 15 minutes of the movie. I don't get that at all. What? You, you cried yes, through the last I 15 did. minutes. <laughs> I did. You are one strange moviegoer, Christian I, I, I just cried and cried, and then I went home and I listened to Billy Joel's Uptown Girl. And oh, you know why. Because I do that know song why. is pivotal. You're right. You're yes, right. Yes. So there you go. All right. So you said good date, great date, what? Uh, I, th- I thought Trainwreck was a very good date. Not a perfect date. I think Amy Schumer's next movie is going to be better. But remember, this is her first time at the rodeo being a starring True. lady in a big feature film. So um, I think next go around, it's going to be an outstanding date. This one was a very good date to me, though. Okay. All right. Well, stay with us. When we come back, we're going to be talking with the director of the new documentary, Do I Sound Gay? I'm Rafer Guzman. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. And this is Movie Date. And a reminder to all of our listeners, first and foremost, we love you. And very soon we're going to be doing a listener mail special because we have um, a lot of listener mail piling up. Yep. But we want you to write to us or to visit our Facebook page if you want to and, you know, either ask us a movie therapy question. We love your movie therapy questions. Those are always great. Or make suggestions of what you think we should be watching for either sweatpants or as a mystery date or just to complain or to weigh in on movies or to disagree with us. Better yet, call. 5717 Movies. I think it's always fun to hear people's voices. But I'm still okay with Facebook.com slash Podcast, even if Rafer's not. All right. Let's get to this week's big interview. We have been excited for months about this little documentary called Do I Sound Gay? Rafer, tell us about it. This is a documentary by uh, a journalist named uh, David Thorpe uh, here in New York, uh, our neighborhood, actually, Park Slope, mm-hmm. um, which we did not know, by the way, before, before <laughs> beforehand. Um but he, uh, he's in his 40s, uh, went through a little uh, crisis uh, personally, and decided that he did not like his quote-unquote gay voice, and he wanted to fix it. So he decides to take some speech and elocution lessons and see if he can sort of straighten out, if you will, his gay voice. Uh, and along the way, he also talks to friends, to experts, to some celebrities. Here's a clip. If I'm in a hotel and I call the front desk, they always say... We'll have that right up to you, ma'am. And I think, really, do I really sound like a woman? I don't, I just, I don't think I sound like a woman. I think I sound like a very small man. That's David Sedaris, just one of many famous talking heads in this film. Uh, yes, along with uh, Dan Savage and uh, uh, George Takai, lots of other people. So we decided to sit down with David Thorpe and ask him about uh, the making of this film. And uh, here's what he said. We all know what it means when you say, oh, someone has a gay voice or sounds gay. And that, that, that means that usually the person has a higher voice or a more melodious, expressive voice, maybe a sibilant S, maybe hyper articulate. Um, but the stereotype of a gay voice is that it sounds more feminine than a, than a typically male voice. Um, But I always like to emphasize that the phrase gay voice is really shorthand 
for the stereotype of the gay voice because there is no gay voice that every gay man has and that's limited to gay men. And, of course, in the film, you meet uh, a friend of mine who's straight who most people would probably say sounds gay. And you've struggled with your gay voice. And what's been your biggest struggle with it? Well, I always felt that my voice was effeminate or more effeminate than some men. And um, that in some ways it made me vulnerable. It made me a target in situations where that wasn't okay. And it's a symbol of not just being effeminate but being gay because a lot of people equate effeminacy with with sexual orientation. When I grew up, you know, it was the 80s and it was a much different time. Um, I grew up in the conservative South. There were no gay people in my life for sure. Um, so I grew up, you know, sort of terrified of any um, aspects of myself that might give me away as gay. And one of the one of your friends, or more than one of your friends, perhaps in the film, um, says that you did not have this voice, quote unquote, um, when they knew you. Um, and one one of your friends, I think, says that that when you did come out and this voice kind of developed, she felt that you were being a bit of a traitor or an imposter or something. Yeah, she even today says that she's still struggling to accept my voice and that she's getting more comfortable with it, but it still feels like an imposter to her. And that's a great moment for me in this film because uh, it was very painful to hear that, you know, she thought that I was pretending to be myself when I was trying so hard to be myself. On the other hand, um, you know, I knew what she was talking about because as when when people see the film, they'll understand. I was having a lot of doubts about what is my authentic voice, what is my real voice. Um, you know, was it my voice before I came out, after I came out? But you know, is that a stereotype that the society told me to embrace? So it was very liberating to hear her say that she had a problem with it too, because um, I don't know. There's something when your worst fears are confirmed. It's very liberating. There are a lot of um, moments in this film, I think, that that wind up uh, getting to be sort of chicken or the egg. Um, there's a there's a moment when uh, one of the experts says, "Well, perhaps what happens is that um, when you come out and you develop a whole new social circle and you get around a lot of people, you get you you wind up with gay men who have adopted this gay voice um, as a sign of pride and a, a certain, almost a certain kind of social status and maybe a cultural defiance against being kind of kept down. But at the same time, that still doesn't answer where that voice came from. And so with you, I mean, what do you, how do you feel now? Do you feel like this was your voice and you repressed it or that was your voice and you learned this? That's a great question. I feel like both of the theories that I talk about in the film are valid. So, you know, I think I did acquire language primarily from women in my life because that's kind of who I identified with strongly as a kid. And, you know, I'm that typical gay man who loves like an amazing Broadway diva. Like, you know, I embrace that. Um, But, you know, certainly when I came out, I did want to fit in and I, I did want my community to know I was a part of it. And I embraced the lingo and um, the modes of expression that we were all using in the 80s when I came out. Uh, I think, though, Dan Savage had something really great to say on this point, which was, so what? Like you, So what if you're the sum of your experiences and cultural pressures? 
you know, that's who you are. And um, it doesn't change the fact that your your voice belongs to you and it comes from you and as much a part of you as your eye color or your height or, you know, like the pain you might get in your left calf when you run. Um, you know, his, I think his feeling was, sorry, man, there's nothing you can do about it. There's no such thing as a real voice, you know, be yourself. Now, when you started off making this film, you talk about being over 40 and having this gay voice and how that might infringe on your confidence dating. And then many people you talked with in the film admitted that even though they're gay, they don't want to necessarily date somebody with a gay voice. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. I was really happy that some of these men on the street that I interviewed were willing to be honest um, because, you know, we we live in a sexist, misogynist culture, you know, for better or worse to, to varying degrees. And, and gay culture is no different. And there is a fear of effeminacy in gay culture. There is um, – there can be a kind of posing where I'm masculine and you're not, so I'm not intru- into you. Um, so I thought it was brave of those guys to to be honest. Um, I don't want to shame anyone for being turned on by masculinity, but I think what's hard to tease out is like when is it um, what you're turned on by and when is it a kind of brainwashing or pressure that's interfering with your ability to connect with people, you know, as they are. I think one of the things I liked in this film most actually were – the conversations that you had uh, with your two friends, um, Sam and Alberto, and Alberto, thank you. Um, these are just uh, uh, dinner conversations. You're just hanging around the little kitchen island, uh, making dinner, talking about this subject. Um, and your two friends were extremely candid, and it was, you know, for me, a great chance to kind of drop in on a conversation that I would, I'm pretty sure, I would otherwise never hear. My producer likes to say that. Uh, the film is about what gay men talk about when there are no straight people around. And (laughs) that conversation was a great example of exactly the kind of frank, candid conversation we might have. That said, it was also the first time the three of us, and we're very close and have been for many, many years, it was really the first time we ever talked about our lingering shame or struggles with our shame about being gay. And in the film, Alberto has a really wonderful moment where... He's like, yeah, I I don't like my gay voice, but it's just part of my generalized self-loathing about being gay. And, I mean, that took my breath away because, uh, I mean, of course I understood what he was talking about, um, but, uh, you know, we had never shared our our feelings about it. And that's how you, you know, for lack of a less cheesy word, heal and grow. And do you feel that you healed in the process of making this film? I definitely healed. I I definitely changed a great deal. I mean, I started doing the film in 2011. Um, We're coming on 2016. So everybody, you know, four to five years is a natural amount of time to change to begin with. But certainly taking the step and talking, sort of talking about my issues, not just with my voice, but with being able to accept myself and my sexuality – you know, the response has been has been so positive and, you know, supportive that I can't help but grow. Well, the new film is called Do I Sound Gay? And we are joined today by the director of the film, David Thorpe. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Kristen, before we say goodbye, let's turn our attention to trivia. 
Well, last week, in honor of Walk of Shame, the movie that has Elizabeth Banks as a local news reporter who's trying to become a big network anchor, we asked about another movie with a TV anchor, and this is the clip we played. My name is Suzanne Moretto. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> Suzanne Moretto is my married name. My own name is Suzanne Stone. That's my professional name. Suzanne Stone. It's not like I have any negative feelings about the name Moretto. Moretto is the name, after all, of my husband, who I loved very, very We asked you to identify what that movie is. Got a lot of right answers, but we can only pick one. Here it is. Hi, Rafer and Kristen. This is Michelle Huan from Fort Worth, Texas. I'm calling about the trivia this week. It's To Die For with Nicole Kidman, which I haven't seen in many, many years, but I was really happy to be reminded of that movie. I think I'll rewatch it. Thanks for the podcast. I listen every week. Have a great day. Yes, excellent job. That's To Die For, the Gus Van Sant film with Nicole Kidman playing the uh, murderous TV anchor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Michelle, thank you so much for calling. And, um, yes. you know, I'm going to rewatch that, too. And wait, was that not Joaquin Phoenix? Oh, hey, look hello, at that. Look hello. At that. Everything comes full circle. See how we did that? Totally, <laughs> totally planned, of Hold course. Hold on, but their fingers are in a different jelly. <laughs> That's, a, That's whole... a totally different jelly. Why did you bring up the jelly again, Kristen? <laughs> okay. Uh, so now we're going to give you this week's trivia question. We were talking about Trainwreck, which uh, has a lot of uh, sports cameos in it. LeBron James, Marv Albert is in that movie. And we Chris thought about... Chris <laughs> Good one, good one. That's right. Um, so we thought about another comedy that has a cameo from a very famous sports figure in it. We're going to play you this clip. Wait a minute. I know you. You play basketball for the Los Angeles Lakers. I'm sorry, son, but you must have me confused with someone else. My name is Roger Murdoch. I'm the co-pilot. I've seen you play. My dad's got season tickets. I think you should go back to your seat now, Joey. Bye, Clarence. Oh, he's not bothering anyone. Let him stay here. All right, but just remember, my name is Roger Murdoch. Oh, come on. That's a gimme. That's a gimme. Is it a gimme? Maybe for a certain generation, Rafer. Ooh, ouch, Kristen. Okay, (laughs) if you know the name of that comedy with that sports figure in it, give us a call, 5717-MOVIES. Or you can message us at facebook.com slash moviedatepodcast. 